suicide game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Time can't be Hello out there and welcome to another episode of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things. This is an attempt by me, Joe Morahan, and my brother, J.S., to provide you with a series of interesting, informative, educational, and yes, we hope, enjoyable stories that will help you navigate through those high seas of life. Welcome to Trial of the 20th Century, Part 10, The Prisoner's Dilemma. And we return to the story of the trial of the century where two teenage geniuses, suspected murderers, were being held by police for questioning and whom initially had offered up alibis for the night of the Bobby Franks murder, so complete in their details that police investigators could and would likely be able to either verify or falsify each minute detail and zero in on any inconsistency unearthed in these alibis. And if truly the devil were in the details, the boys had just locked themselves into a box, the exit from which would prove nearly impossible. As for investigators... Not believing a word of Leopold and Loeb's concocted BS of an alibi, they honed in on what they concluded was a fabricated tale, which on its surface struck them immediately as totally improbable. Just totally improbable. And as for Leopold and Loeb, things had spiraled out of control way, way too quickly. They'd made far too many mistakes for smart guys. And thought often destroys the thinker. And great minds are complex organisms with many complicated ideas that randomly fire across the four lobes of each hemisphere of our brains. And each lobe, you know, the the frontal, the parietal, the temporal, and the occipital, controlling specific brain functions. And in order to hide one's thoughts, one must have only one single thought to hide from discovery. In brilliant boys, geniuses like uh, Leopold and Loeb, there was a lot going on inside their heads, which for observant, trained, experienced investigators makes such complicated minds easy to read, which is why great minds are often tripped up and fooled by far inferior minds. As students, Leopold and Loeb had always been the head of the class, ahead of their teachers in many cases. As criminals, the police were taking Leopold and Loeb to school. Yes, they were. And their alibi broke down right out of the chute and was exposed as a complete fabrication almost immediately when Nathan Leopold's family chauffeur informed investigators he'd been repairing Leopold's car on the very night at the very time the two boys claimed they had been using that very car. So much for the joyriding, the picking up of girls, the park, the lake, the, the alibi, all of it complete and total nonsense. 
And when the and when the chauffeur's wife then corroborated Leopold's car had been parked in Leopold's garage all night on the night of the murder, any claim, any hope the boys might have still maintained that they had committed the perfect crime, the perfect murder, well, that was over and done with. They were toast. You know, in in ancient Rome, where, where many, many famous arches had been constructed over millennia, uh, you know, amongst its numerous architectural feats of wonder, there existed a tradition, a long-standing tradition, by which at the arches unveiling, the designing architect would stand proudly beneath the arch as the scaffolding uh, was removed. And doing so was a symbolic demonstration of the architect's confidence in his achievement and the pride that he derived from his accomplishment. And in the event the arch's design was flawed, well, well, then the architect, he would be the first to know and would suffer the consequences. And in the case of Leopold and Loeb, they too were they, they, they too were just so intelligent. They had to not, you know, realize, they had to not realize the structure under which they now stood. Their alibi was fatally flawed. It was all crashing down upon them. And the consequences of this in 1924, the fate that awaited them was not good. Almost assuredly, it was going to be death by hanging. At, at, at that moment in time, words written by 18th century British author Samuel Johnson, you know, nearly two, 200 years previously, you know, whether Johnson happened to be known to Leopold or not, the words applied. They had to accurately reflect both their states, both their states of mind as they sat sequestered inside those separate interrogation rooms in which they were now being questioned. And the words of Samuel Johnson were, nothing will so focus a man's mind as knowing he will be hanged in the morning. Whoa, recognition, that recognition had come too late, that they were now doomed, just had to overwhelm both Leopold and Loeb. They were now in way over their heads now. They had to know, as Mick Jagger would sing 50 years later, it's all over now. Their only hope. And it, 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 and it would have been, at best, only the slightest of all possible hopes. And it would exist for only one of them, if it existed at all. And you can imagine, you can just feel the anguish, that crippling despair. That is hubris you know, of the fools who cling blindly to hope, you know, only to find that hope will be dashed upon the rocks. You know, these are dreamers crushed under the sheer weight of reality. Leopold and Loeb now found themselves abject failures. That was a state of the fate of Leopold and Loeb as they sat in those police headquarters alone in their individual interrogation rooms. For investigators, life is too often a destructive force. 
And that destructive force must be constantly kept in check. It's a Hobbesian world out there. And, and that is where the police and the judicial system play vital roles in enforcing, by rule of law, peace will be maintained. And, and by doing so, and to the extent possible, they see to it that society runs as smoothly as possible. Criminals diminish the peace and tranquility and, and ruin a fragile community society by harming people and property. Capturing and helping in the removal of such criminals off, you know, to remove them from the streets, that is the sole role of the police force. And here in the case of the murder of Bobby Franks, the police knew, they, the investigators just knew they were close to breaking the case. They were closing in on Leopold and Loeb. One of them might give it up, confess, sell out the other guy. And by doing so, anticipate, no, 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 no. The best that one might be able to do is hope, only hope, by far, by some far-fetched, undeserved leniency, might obtain for himself. And the only way by which the gallows might be afforded, avoided, that, and that the other guy, would hang for the crime. That was the best they could hope for. And the two boys found themselves engaged in a version of what would become known later as the prisoner's dilemma, the subtitle of our program today. An invention of the Rand Corporation, the prisoner's dilemma is in game theory, uh, is a game theory thought experiment involving two rational agents each of whom can cooperate for their mutual benefit or betray each other, you know, defect for individual reward. And in a prisoner's dilemma situation, two prisoners might find themselves ending up in the worst possible circumstance because they cannot trust their accomplice won't defect, cooperate with the authorities first, thereby screwing them over. Therefore, each prisoner must decide whether to stay silent with the investigators, you know, mutually cooperating with his accomplice by such silence or, or to defect, admit the crime in hopes of cutting a plea deal and such defection leaving his partner out to dry and screwing him over. Yeah. That's a prisoner's dilemma. And each prisoner must make that decision independently without communicating with each other. This is where things get dicey. What will your accomplice do under conditions of increasing stress? That is the question. Prisoner A knows defecting is always the better option for himself. And under the same kind of reasoning, prisoner B knows it is always better for him if he defects. They might both be better off if neither defects. But one can't know. One can't know for sure or be sure what the other guy will do. And both always find themselves individually worse off if the other guy defects first. Shit, this really is a prisoner's dilemma. What to do? Well, I mean, what to do? I mean, this, this scenario has led to what's called the Nash Equilibrium. It was the first 
defined by that brilliant but unstable economist who was the protagonist of um, the Academy Award-winning mo movie, uh, Beautiful Mind. And, and it was Nash who proved mathematically that the optimal solution for either prisoner is to always defect. And given where Leopold and Loeb found themselves, to trust in each other now was likely to prove a near-death experience, really and truly. Investigators now decided to focus in on who was the weaker man, the weaker man, and it was Richard Loeb. And he gave it up. He gave it up first. And there, there is no honor in betraying a friend. It's disgusting to witness. One squirms at and, and f feels like he needs to be deloused de after observing up close and personal the dirty business. That is the, the dirty business of double dealing. But police investigators are experienced in the nasty business that accompanies the betrayal of friends and associates. And, and they know the idea of honor among thieves to be simply a wives' tale. It's BS, and, and to which they've been exposed far, far too often. But as, dis, as distasteful as it is for in, investigators, on the personal level, to sit back and watch people sell each other out. It's standard operating procedure. It's a critical tool in the detective's hand, toolbox. And, you know, as if, if it doesn't fit, you pull out a bigger hammer. Sweat the perps. They're bound, given enough time, to rat out their buddies. And furthermore, investigators know if these guys are capable of committing murder, the capacity, their capacity to betray a friend is easy to come by. In fact, it's no big deal. It requires little effort. It's nothing to them, actually. It's, it'll be done in a heartbeat. And making it far easier to be a witness to all this nastiness is the truth that investigators never lose sight of the fact that these guys, these scumbags, are criminals. In, in most simplistic terms, these are bad guys, simply bad men. And no matter what twisted principle underlies the philosophy of modern degrees of this inane political wokeness that has taken America by storm, police investigators just cannot and will not condone nor accept any excuses any nonsense that's made for murder. Not in 20, 1924, that's for sure. So Richard Loeb coughed it up first, and he confessed. Yes, he and, he and Nathan planned the kidnap and murder. Yes, they'd identified and targeted Bobby Franks for kidnap and murdering. Yes, they kidnapped Bobby Franks. Yes, they had planned that ransom demand call. Um, yes, they typed up the ransom demand itself. Yes, he and Leopold had planned the murder in detail. Yes, they'd rented the car in which Bobby Franks was murdered. Yes, he'd been there when Bobby Franks was killed, but no, 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 no. It wasn't me that killed and stabbed Bobby Franks. You gotta believe me, Loeb asserted. I didn't kill Bobby Franks. No, it was Nathan, Nathan Leopold who did it. He stabbed him. I, I, I was just driving. 
It was Nathan. Nathan really, he, and by the way, Nathan, just for the record, he planned everything. I just went along with him. Now, in another uh, interrogation room sat Nathan Leopold, whom, whom soon got the picture of where things stood. And he too confessed, but insisted he'd been the driver while it was Loeb who had killed the Franks kid. It was Loeb stabbed Bobby Franks to death in the back seat of the rental car. All I did was drive the car, said Nathan Leopold. Well, the two, conf- the two confessions, accepting only the part about who had actually stabbed Bobby Franks to death with a chisel. Otherwise, everything corroborated detail for detail with events. And their stories aligned 100% with the physical evidence that was gathered by investigators in the case. The police had two murders. They had the two murders of Bobby Franks in their custody. But what truly was the motive for the murder? Investigators wanted to know this. What could 14-year-old Bobby Franks, their neighbor, what could he possibly have done to either Leopold or Loeb to warrant his murder? And every crime has a story behind it. And investigators um, know that the most common motives for murder are derived from one of the four L's. Lust, love, loathing, and loot. But in this Bobby Frank's case, nothing seemed to fit. Lust, love, loathing, loot. It didn't apply. It didn't apply to the Bobby Frank's murder. Could the Frank's murder have been a kidnapping for ransom gone wrong? I mean, the families were extraordinarily wealthy, Leopold and Loeb's families, and the two boys were living large already. Money as a motive, I mean, it simply made no sense to the detectives. And with the two murderers now in custody, confessions obtained, investigators honed in on nailing down possible motive. What was going on here? What possibly had compelled two teenagers to kill their teenage neighbor? Ah, the, you know, the, the, the story would turn dark, ugly, disgusting early on as the two geniuses sought to explain themselves. And their, their confessions proved repulsive in the extreme, even by the standards established by experienced um, investigators whom during the course of their careers had already been exposed many times to all manner of atrocity, debauchery, and hideous criminal activity. But killing people, killing a person just for the fun of it, sickened them for they hadn't come across this motive before when investigating the traditional murders and the four L's, which tended to explain most motivations for homicide, but which, of course, don't and never do justify that homicide. The police and the public at large were about, they were about to gain a lot, a great deal, of insight into just how the minds of two geniuses actually worked. But as when studying uh, a Bruegel painting, the closer one looks at the work, the more one sees that things have gone way, way wrong in that picture. Violence and death 
are everywhere. And further investigation will reveal the story gets even uglier. Hey, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed. And we'll be back with our next part of Trial of the Century. Bye-bye. I'm lost in a drift on the high seas of life.